King Jesus. This is a familiar part of the Bible during a very familiar time of year. It would be so easy for us to click into autopilot and miss the agony of your glory on Calvary. Would you grant me now by your spirit words, words fitting to make plain what your word says? Would you grant us all a fresh glimpse of your glory as the only crucified king, as the one who gave his life for the sheep? We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. There are some words that just seem to naturally go together. Peanut butter and jelly. Warm hugs. Or as my wife and I just experienced on our family vacation, Florida sunshine. Some words just naturally go together. There are other words that seem like they are incompatible with each other. Sometimes we call these a, a contradiction in terms. Like dry rain, or how about a pleasant root canal? Or worst of all, a welcome audit. Some words go together, some words don't. Our, our passage this morning presents a challenge because to our modern ears, it puts together two words that seem to pose no problem to us. And yet 2,000 years ago, they would have been understood as the sort of words that must never be put together. Those two words are crucified and king. Our passage before us shows us Jesus in his moment of glory that all of John's gospel has been building toward, and it seems as if it shows him as a walking contradiction. A king that dies a criminal's death hanging on a cross. And yet in the mystery of God's providence, it is the height of his glory. This morning we'll walk through what is undoubtedly a familiar passage to most of us. The passage where Jesus is crucified. And as we do, we'll see three seeming contradictions along the way. That as we look at them more closely, will actually show us this beautiful crucified king in a fresh, joy-filled way. Those three seeming contradictions we'll see will take us through the passage. Our first, in 17 through 27, we'll see his glory in his humiliation. His glory in his humiliation. Second, in 28 through 42, we'll see his accomplishment in his death. His accomplishment in his death. And then finally, in verse 35. Something that seems like a contradiction to our modern individualistic spirituality, uh, age of spirituality, we'll see his requirement of faith. His requirement of faith. Come with me to that hill called Calvary and let us see together the glory of the crucified king. Let's begin in 17 through 27. His glory in his humiliation. I don't know about you, but when I think of moments of humiliation in my life, they are things I would rather forget. 
There was one time when I was about a junior high student way back in the day, and I was invited to participate serving in a church. We were assistants to the ushers that morning. It was a big deal. And I was given the all-important task of pulling down the window shade to keep that supernova brightness of the Florida sun from shining in people's eyes. Well, mid-service, I got up to do my task, and I pulled on the shade, and it didn't really want to come down, so I pulled a little harder. It still didn't want to come down, and you can see where this is going. I pulled really hard, and it came down. A screech that should not be heard by any human ears, a crash, the whole assembly came down. The preacher paused. Everyone looked back. I had that moment where I realized all eyes were on me in the worst possible way. I mean, it's been over 20 years, and I still can feel the eyeballs on me. We all have moments like that, humiliating moments. Maybe it was in the lunchroom for you. Maybe it was Christmas dinner that didn't come out quite the way you wanted, and no one will let you forget about it in your household. We have that natural tendency to forget our worst moments. But how different is it for Jesus? His moment of humiliation is the moment that we remember him for because his moment of humiliation is also his moment of glory. Remember how we got here. A couple weeks ago, Chris Sarver preached about the mock trial that Jesus went through. He was brought by the scheming of the religious leaders up on Trump charges. They sent him to the, the uh, Roman governor, Pilate. Pilate had all the reasons in the world to let him go. But due to political pragmatism, a little cruelty, a little cold-heartedness, he decided to crucify Jesus. The soldiers have already softened him up. They've flogged him. They've ripped the flesh from his back. They've beaten him. They've mocked him. They've dressed him up as a mock king. And now they start to march him on the way to his place of execution. And yet we also know from John's gospel that this is a path that Jesus himself has decided to be on. That from the beginning, his whole life was on his father's timetable, and now he is on the final leg of his journey. That road to lead, that leads to the place called Golgotha, or Calvary. We pick it up there in verse 17. And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Back then, the Romans, when they would crucify someone, they would make the soon-to-be-executed prisoner, carry the uh, horizontal beam of the cross. So we think of Jesus as carrying both parts of the cross on his back walking. He actually probably was only carrying the horizontal beam. It still would have been 40-plus pounds. And the Romans were experts in cruelty. They would pick the longest possible route to take someone along the way so that everyone could see the spectacle they were making. The message was clear. You do not oppose Rome. Now, John doesn't tell us things that the other gospels tell us about someone else carrying his cross. That'll be the first of many details you may know from Matthew, Mark, or Luke's account of the crucifixion. We're going to stick to what John says this morning. Because in God's providence, it shows us Jesus, the crucified king, with a fresh angle on his glory. 
Jesus, he, he carries his cross, and then finally he arrives on that hill called Golgotha, or the, the place of the skull. It could be because of the appearance of the hill. could be just because so many people were killed there. Jesus arrives, and then he is forced uh, to endure three additional humiliations. The first humiliation was that carrying of his cross. The second is the humiliation of the cruelty of being crucified. We're told there very succinctly, there they crucified him, and with two others, one at each side, and Jesus between them. Now, John doesn't go into details about what crucifixion entailed because he didn't need to. Everyone knew what it meant to be crucified back then. Crucifixion was not a punishment that just anyone would get. It was the cruelest of the cruel. If you were a Roman citizen, it was not even an available option for them to punish you with unless Caesar himself said that you should be crucified. The Jews understood it equally as abominable. They, they thought of it as being hung on a tree. It meant someone was accursed, and that day, it was not something you spoke about in polite society. Crucifixion was the picture of horror. What did it involve? Well, they would take the soon-to-be-executed prisoner. They would bring that horizontal beam. They would lay him down on top of it, stretch out the arms, and nail large nails through the hands or the wrist. Once you were attached to the beam, they would hoist it up to the vertical beam, which was already in place. But they wouldn't put you up too high. No, they wanted you to be about eye level so that you would have to look your friends and enemies in the eye as you died. The horror of crucifixion was multiplied by the fact that you were stripped naked there was still a taboo back then of being naked, hanging there, unable to cover yourself. Your feet were also nailed to that vertical beam, and underneath it, in a, an ingenious form of cruelty, was a small little platform that would let you push up. Because you see, the thing that killed you with crucifixion wasn't blood loss or trauma. The thing that killed you is that you couldn't breathe. You would asphyxiate. It was a slow, painful death. You would have to pull yourself up to give your chest enough room to take a breath. And as you pulled the wounds of the nails on your hands and your feet, it would be agony. Your arms and your back and your chest would begin to cramp. And yet if you did not do this horrible rhythmic motion, you wouldn't breathe and you would die. As a lifelong asthmatic, I can tell you being unable to breathe is one of the worst sensations in this world. Imagine your whole life. The only thing that is left in your life is never-ending gasping for agonizing breath, one after another. That is what it meant to be crucified. And remember that little ledge under the feet? That was a Roman invention to make sure that the person hanging there survived a little longer, that they had to gasp for a few more hours with a little more efficiency as they pushed up. The humiliation that Jesus bears in this moment is hard to describe. 
There's a third humiliation in 19 through 22. There's a mocking inscription put above him by Pilate. Verse 19 says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This isn't Pilate taking Jesus' claims to kingship seriously. Pilate is simultaneously having at least three motives. First, he's continuing to mock Jesus, just like the soldiers put that purple robe and robe on him and the crown of thorns. Pilate is multiplying the insult to Jesus' injury in this moment. You're the king of the Jews. I will make an example of you, Jesus. His other motive is outward to others, that they would see Jesus and that they would know the price of rebelling against Rome. You dare put yourself on the level with Caesar? You dare to take the title of king for yourself? This is what happens to you. But third, there's another angle that Pilate's playing here. Pilate is also needling those religious leaders that had brought Jesus to him. Look at this back and forth with Pilate and the religious leaders in verse 20. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. In other words, Pilate, you're making us look bad. We don't claim him as king. But Pilate, at this point, he is done with the scheming of this group. He is done with them holding his feet to the fire. So in verse 22, you can see Pilate makes them suffer too. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Pilate very intentionally worded this the way he did. He made sure it was in three different languages so that no one could miss what was going on. This, at its moment, was Rome flexing its muscle over Jesus and even over the Jewish religious leaders. There's a fourth humiliation that Jesus has. In 23 through 24, he's stripped of his last earthly possessions. I've already told you he was naked, but look what happens He dies without a penny to his name, without a shirt on his back. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. There was a perfect number of items to disperse amongst the soldiers. You get his sandals and his turban and his outer robe, but but there's one problem. There's four of them and there's actually five items. So what do you do with that undergarment? The problem with undergarment is it's one piece. You can't just cut it into four pieces. It's ruined at that point. So instead, they gamble over it. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Now, unknowingly, yet again, these evil men, as they are bringing about even more pain upon Jesus, they're actually fulfilling prophecy. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now this morning we don't have time to go into all the prophecies that are being fulfilled in detail, so I'm going to give you a little bit of homework. Several times in this passage, at least two, possibly three times, Psalm 22 is either explicitly mentioned or alluded to. So maybe this afternoon or this week, Why don't you use Psalm 22 as a a way to further your worship of Jesus? See, as 
from the lips of David as he thinks about his own sufferings, how he predicted the sufferings of Jesus. Now, what's amazing in all of this, even as Jesus is being so spectacularly humiliated, is that he still has the strength and the peace of mind and, and yet even the capacity to think of others in this moment. In 25 through 27, you have this beautiful example in contrast to these cruel soldiers of Jesus caring for his mother. We're told that there are four women standing near the cross. This would have been pretty common. You had an ability to, to walk up and be close to those who were being crucified. They surely would have been horrified. That sword that would pierce Mary's heart, it has already sunk in deep. Jesus sees his mother, and as he is gasping for breath, as he is in the midst of his agony, he provides for her in a way that no one else could. He looks at the disciple John, he looks at her, and he says, you two are now family. John, this is your, now your mother. Mary, this is now your son. Now in this moment, Jesus is not just acting as a concierge service. This is a picture of the way Jesus cares for the family of God hanging on a cross. Mary and John, new disciples that will be needed, in need of much encouragement in the days ahead, are provided with a means of grace from Jesus. And it's a reminder to each of us that hanging on the cross, our Savior thought of our needs and even met our needs. As we put all of this together, friends, do you see the beautiful and bitter picture of the glory of the humiliated Messiah, the glory of the crucified King? As we see him at his lowest of moments, friends, remember that this was always the plan. This was always what Jesus said must happen. Back in chapter 3, he said that when the Son of Man is lifted up like the bronze snake in the wilderness, anyone that looks to him would be saved. In chapter 8, he says, when the Son of Man was lifted up, that then you would know I am he. And in chapter 12, he said, when... I am lifted up. I will draw all people to myself. Friends, from the very beginning, Jesus intended for this moment of his humiliation on the cross. Because from the very beginning, his glory was meant to shine from that hill called Calvary. Think about this, friends. When we think about Jesus 2,000 years later, we think about him rightly as the one who died on the cross. We don't forget his low moment. No, in the mystery of the divine plan of redemption, to show us the glory of God, his lowest moment is the moment where you see him the most clearly. We see his glory and his humiliation. But that leaves a really important question. It's one thing for us to say his humiliation was not an accident. What did he actually accomplish in that moment? Did he actually do anything? Well, that's what brings us to the second seeming contradiction. Verses 28 through 42. 
his accomplishment in his death. One of the more touching accounts of someone's death in history is the death of the philosopher Socrates. He is uh, convicted of atheism and forced to uh, drink poison to commit suicide. And as he does, his friends are gathered around him and they are struck by the virtue of this man and his peace knowing his end is coming. One of his uh, one of his followers, Plato, wrote this. He said, with these words, he stoically drank the potion quite readily and cheerfully. Up till this moment, most of us were able with some decency to hold back our tears. But when we saw him drinking the poison to the last drop, we could restrain ourselves no longer. In spite of myself, the tears came in floods so that I covered my face and wept. It's a precious moment to see someone you look up to, to see them in their last moments as they die. And yet as touching as it is to that account of Socrates dying, let's recognize how much greater it is when a death actually accomplishes something. Jesus doesn't just give up his death for no reason. No, as we'll see, he does so to finish what he came to this earth to do, to accomplish fully his father's will. Look with me there, starting in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. He's been hanging there for hours, up and down, breathe, gasp, agony, moment after moment, the hot Middle Eastern sun sucking the water right out from him. He could feel his life slipping away. And yet he has three acts of obedience remaining. Three last things to punch off his list to fulfill his father's agenda. First, he says, I thirst. This isn't Jesus suddenly being taken with a moment of wanting comfort in this world. No, this is a man whose throat surely was a mess, needing to make sure that it was ready for one final word. He is given the equivalent of uh, Roman Gatorade. It's some sour wine that's a cheap drink that soldiers would have on hand. They put it on a sponge and they use like a branch of, from a hyssop tree to bring it up to him and he's able to drink a little bit. Now, all of that actually ends up fulfilling another prophecy. Again, we don't have time to get into specifically where that's happening, but study Psalms uh, 22 and verse 15 when you get into it later this week. Then he has a second thing he must do. He must preach one final sermon. A sermon made up of one word, but one word that will echo through eternity. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on the hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Although I didn't say that right, friends, because Jesus didn't say this with a whimper. He didn't say this with a whisper. 
No, he said this as a cry of victory. He bellowed it with the last remaining strength he had. He summoned all that was left within him and put an exclamation mark at the end of his life. The very word of God come to this world to say, it is finished. That's one word in Greek, three words in English. One word that it would take an eternity to unpack because it declares that Jesus has fulfilled the plan of God from eternity past for this world and forevermore. What does he mean when he says it is finished? Well, I don't have anywhere close to enough time to unpack all of it. There's not enough time in this world to do that. But let me give you four of the most important things that he means. First, he means his earthly obedience is finished. His perfect record of righteousness, fulfilling his father's agenda and the law's demands, Jesus has not failed at a single task. He has punched off every item on the list perfectly. It is now finished. He is the perfect son of God, obedient to the very end. Second, it is finished means that the sacrifice for sins is finished. As Jesus hung on the cross, he wasn't just enduring the Middle Eastern sun and the beating of the soldiers and blood loss and loss of breath. He endures the very wrath of God towards sinners. And Jesus knows that his sacrifice of his life has been accepted. Sinners now will find full forgiveness from God. Every one of his sheep will be saved because his sacrifice is complete. Third, it is finished means his battle with sin, the devil, and the world is now complete. He has achieved victory over the one that thought he would thwart God's plans by killing the Messiah. He has destroyed the power of sin by nailing it to the cross with him. He has ensured that death will not have the last say, that eternal life will reign once more. Jesus has won the battle, and so he can declare it is finished. And fourth and finally, he has completed writing the new covenant in his blood. A new era is being ushered in between God and his people. No longer will they come to a temple to worship. No longer will they need priests and have to, will God's presence be hidden behind curtains. Now they will be ushered into the very throne room of God by the very spirit of God living within them. Because God will now dwell with his people. Jesus has finished the work of bringing the new covenant between God and his people. After he bellows this cry of victory, Jesus has one final act of obedience. He lowers his head and he gives up his spirit. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. As he said earlier in John's gospel, no one takes his life from him. No, he gives it up willingly. Jesus sends his spirit back to the father that sent him. And in this moment, his earthly mission is complete. 
the author of life tastes death and in so doing brings life to us all. From there, the narrative picks up pace. We see the aftermath of people verifying that Jesus is dead and then making sure his body is buried. The, the Jews in 31 and following, they're, they're worried about the purity of the Passover. They're not allowed to have uh, someone hanging on a cross once Sabbath starts. To do so is to bring a curse upon them. So they go to the Romans and they say, hey, why, why don't we speed this up a little bit? The Romans were happy to oblige. They could do that by breaking someone's legs. Then you can't push up anymore, and pretty quickly you are unable to breathe and you die. Well, as they go, they break the first person on the cross on the side of Jesus, then the other person. They get to Jesus, and they find out he's already dead. Surprising how quickly he expired. They actually double-check by having a soldier uh, poke him in the side with a spear, and then we're, we're told... And at once, verse 34, there came out blood and water. Now, I'm not a doctor. In my study, there are at least two possible conditions that could lead to this sort of phenomenon of blood and water coming out. Uh, the point is not to identify what it was. It's just to say, this is something that happened. And most specifically, this is something that John himself saw to give credibility to his testimony. Well, from there, they take him to be buried. Uh, two disciples of his, at great cost to themselves, take the body of Jesus and place him in a tomb. Well, one we've heard of before, Nicodemus. It appears at some level he has an allegiance to Jesus. And then another man named Joseph of Arimathea. They stick their neck out, they get the right to Jesus' body, and they make sure he gets a decent burial. Now John tells us all of this for a purpose. And that leads to the final contradiction this morning. The one that gets us to right where we live, right where we sit, right to our hearts. The contradiction that Jesus has a requirement of us, a requirement of faith. Look in verse 35. He who has seen it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. In case we had any trouble figuring out what John wants us to take from this, he inserts a little editorial comment, a little authorial comment, and says, this is what this is about. I'm telling you this so that you might believe. Now, we live in a day and age where people think of belief or faith as intensely personal. It's something that you can't question. You certainly can't require it of anyone. But not so for the Bible, not so for the author John, and not so, friend, for Jesus. Jesus, the one who is the crucified king, has only one requirement for any of us. And that is that we would have faith, that we would believe that he is who he claimed he is, and that we would believe he did what his, this scripture tells us he did. John's whole gospel is written for this purpose, that you would know enough about Jesus, that you could trust him, and in trusting him, find the thing you so desperately need, friend, forgiveness of sins and eternal life. See, according to the Bible, our big problem is not that we don't make enough money 
or that our spouses don't appreciate us enough. It's not that we don't have enough economic opportunities or that we don't have enough education. No, our problem is that we are sinners before a God who is perfect and holy and that the very wrath of God is already upon us and there's nothing we can do to fix that situation. But the good news is on Christmas, God sent his son on a rescue mission into this world. The very son of God from heaven came as a baby to live, to grow, and to at this moment on the cross to die. To die as a substitute for sinners. To give his life in the place of sinners. So that if we believe in him, we can be forgiven of our sins. We can no longer have guilt and shame. We can no longer have doom hanging over us. Instead, we can have a full, abundant joy, knowing we are not God's enemies, but his friends. Friend, if you don't know Jesus in this way, this Christmas, that would be the greatest gift you could ever receive. If you need to know how you can do that, or you need someone to answer some questions, come forward after the service. I would love to meet you and pray with you. I'd love to tell you about how you can know Jesus in this way. For all of us here this morning, though, it's important for us not to let the familiarity of the cross and this season inoculate us to the glory of the crucified king. Brothers and sisters, would you, would you hear that one-word sermon again in your heart this morning? Would you hear the thunder Tetelestai coming from the cross? And would you remember what that means for you? Brothers and sisters, are you in a dark place this Christmas? Do you feel as if you never quite live up to God's standards? You can't possibly believe that he would be pleased with you. Would you remember that when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant that for all your striving and earning, he meant that for all your attempts to earn, get merit. He meant that to say, I have now a perfect record of righteousness. And friend, he has given it to you as a gift. Would you hear that one word sermon this morning? Or maybe you're in a spot where you're having trouble forgiving someone who's done something truly awful to you. Maybe they're not even apparently sorry about it. You don't know how you could ever get that tape in your head to stop playing. Would you hear that one word sermon? It is finished. Would you remember that sins have been punished at the cross? If that person's a Christian, then that sin was already paid for by the blood of Jesus. See if that might help you to be able to forgive. Or maybe you're feeling forgotten this Christmas. Maybe you feel like the kids don't call as often as they used to. Your friends don't have as much time for you as they used to have. Maybe you even feel lonely in your own marriage this Christmas. Friend, would you remember, would you remember that when that one word sermon was preached, the man hanging there was thinking of you. He wasn't just dying as an accident. This wasn't some unforeseen turn of events. 
Now, this was him laying down his life for the sheep, the ones he knows by name. This Christmas, think about the fact, brother and sister, that Jesus died with your name written on his hands and your name graven on his heart. As we come to the end of this journey, to that hard, hard hill called Golgotha. And we see the crucified king in all his glory. Let's remember that his final word was for us. Charles Spurgeon said this of this moment. It is finished, sinner. There's nothing for God to do. It is finished. There's nothing for you to do. It is finished. Christ need no more bleed. It is finished. You need no more weep. Brothers and sisters, this Christmas, let's remember the man who came to this earth to die as the crucified king and gave his life for sinners like you and me. Let's pray.